Let me pray for us as we've got a uh, eh, tough passage ahead of us. All right, let's pray. Father, um, thank you for your word. Um, we love that, uh, that as we read it, there are things in there that, um, <laughs> one of the things I love about the Bible, we read things and we go, I don't, don't know how that um, quite fits with where I live or the culture I live in. And yet, God, uh, we love that, um, that the Bible is, is uh, kind of super cultural. It's uh, transcultural. It's above culture. Uh, it equally offends and affirms so many different cultures at many different points. Um, because it's just more proof, God, that it's from you. It's your word, and it's, uh, it's, it transcends all of these things. And so there are times we read in Scripture, there are things that make us um, affirm uh, maybe the grace and love and things that we, we affirm as a culture. And you know, there's things that, God, we see like today that you take seriously sin. And that's not something popular in our culture. And so, um, so God, I pray as we look at this, you would give us teachable spirits, um, pliable hearts, uh, give us eyes to see, God, as we look at this passage, ultimately, Lord, to see you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as was read, Jesus is serious. <laughs> okay? Jesus is serious. And, and that's important that you kind of just take that phrase for a minute there and just let that sit for a minute. Jesus is serious. Um, we, uh, we, can, we, we need to be reminded of that because slowly... Uh, we get lulled to sleep by, honestly, kind of a user-friendly Jesus that gets shopped around American churches, right? It's a Jesus that kind of fits in your back pocket, Jesus that kind of just fits the mold of whatever you want him to fit, um, and, and just goes with it. He's, uh, Jesus is seen in, today as, you know, he's just, he's just kind and, and gentle, sometimes the phrase, the big guy upstairs, never bothered much by our selfishness or greed or consumerism. And, and, and he seems to never be do that. That's kind of the, that's the, the picture of Jesus we kind of have in our culture. Without a steady diet of what we call expository preaching, which is where we go through a book of the Bible verse by verse, we, 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 we will slowly create this Jesus that fits into our plans and just affirms us in whatever we want to say or do. And instead of, as the Bible affirms in Genesis, instead of God making man in his image, we kind of turn around and we try to make God in our own image, Right? And that's very easy for all of us to do, not just some other people, but ourselves. Eventually, what happens is we, we stop calling sin, sin. And we, we know something's wrong with us. We, we, get, we get that, but it doesn't seem to be much of a problem or maybe not something we can't, we can't like get over or fix ourselves. But in our text today, we find Jesus is serious about sin. And we, we better get a, get a grip on that and how it hinders us from following Jesus, especially as it pertains to the mission that he has put us on. Now, in fact, what we'll see in this passage, we, Jesus takes sin so seriously, he takes the life of two of the members of the church. Now, at this point, where we are in this text, the, the, the heat has been turned up on the church externally, we could say. All right? We could say in the first last couple of chapters we've been looking at that the heat's kind of turned up externally. We begin to see that uh, kind of the, the hornet's nest of, of religion has been kicked over, and the religious leaders are kind of swarming and stinging and trying to shut down the church, shut down the mouths, shut the mouths of the apostles, right? Have everybody stop talking about Jesus, and they're doing everything they can, and they'll continue to do so. But here we find that that hasn't worked. The gospel continues to go forward. People continue to come to know Jesus. And so Satan actually switches tactics and tries to destroy the mission of the church by having the church implode on itself. Destroy it from the inside, right? 
Would they, and the question becomes, would the church take sin seriously? Would they decide that it's not a big deal? Would they, would the, would they reason that the, the purity of the church makes no difference for the mission of the church, right? It doesn't matter how, who we are and, and what we believe and how we, how we act or, or what we think. Does it matter as long as we just talk about Jesus? Does it matter? Does the purity of the church matter for the mission? And so what we're going to do in this text a little differently than we usually do. We're going to just ask, I'm going to call it diagnostic questions, of the text. So we're going to look at it and we're going to ask some questions. These are questions that I, I asked as I looked at the passage and we'll kind of walk through it together and see it, okay? So we're going to look at those. The first question we'll look at is this. Number one, what's the problem? That's where we need to start. What, what is the problem? These first eight verses, we'll kind of look at, at this. We find a guy here named Ananias, his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. Okay, stop right there. If you haven't been with us so far through the book of Acts, it's important you understand the context of what has happened. Back at the end of chapter 4, we find a guy named Barnabas who sold a piece of property and gave it, you know, at the apostles' feet, did the same thing, okay? So if we, we read that and then we just read verse 1 and we stop there, we would look at that and be like, hey, these people, just like we talked about last week, they're excited about the mission that Jesus has them on. They're, they're so in love with Jesus, he is their treasure, their king, their savior, that they developed a radical view of their possessions, the gospel transformed them from possessive persons, we talked about last week, to stewards of stuff, okay? So they're not possessive persons anymore of their, of their things. They're now, they're now sharing those. Um, we find that they came to realize that their things were resources entrusted to them uh, by Jesus and available to Jesus for the welfare of others, however he saw fit. And that was kind of the, the way the gospel began to shape how people viewed their stuff. So many were radically giving and, and so they were radically giving of themselves. Some were selling their own properties and houses and giving them away. And we see a couple join into that celebration, which at least is what it looks like. And so at the beginning, we go, oh, this looks pretty great. They're doing exactly what Barnabas did, right? They're doing the same thing. They have property. They sold it. They gave it. You know, this is, this is a good thing. But something, as you just heard read, <laughs> something's wrong here, right? Something is wrong with their giving. And it's really not their giving that's wrong as much as it is their heart, in their giving that is wrong. If we stopped at verse 1, we would commend uh, them just like Barnabas in the previous chapter. But Jesus, this is so important you understand this, Jesus is more concerned with the heart than the outward acts we do. Not that he's not concerned about the outward acts, but he's more concerned about the heart. Right? Jesus will talk about this in the Gospels. If you were part of the First Samuel study or Second Samuel study, you'll realize that God looks, you know, while man looks on the outside, God looks at the what? The heart, right? It looks on the inside. Jesus is more interested more in the, the why than the what, because when the why is right, then the what will be right, okay? It flows out of the heart, Jesus says, flows the issues, you know, out of the mouth flows the issues of the heart. It comes from the heart. And that's what he's concerned about. So we get in verse 2, and we find that uh, this, this piece of property was sold. The, the couple did it together. Um, they, they kept back some of the proceeds, brought, brought only a part of it, laid it at the apostles' feet. So again, what we see so far is here we see collaboration and communication between a husband and a wife. That's a good thing, right? Good communication. They're working together as a team. This is good. They sold a piece of property, okay? They kept back some of the proceeds for themselves. Was, was that wrong? Is it wrong for you to go sell a piece of property and keep proceeds of it? Is that, is, that, is that a bad thing? Does the Bible say that's wrong? Is that what we're getting at? And that's not what it's talking about. It's not wrong in and of itself. 
They worked together, they talked it out, they kept back some, maybe they did so to take care of their own family. First Timothy 5 talks about, commends that, hey, you should take care of your own family financially and doing that and take care of those in your household. That's all commendable. So something else is going on. Down in verse 3, we find Peter, he said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Keep back for yourself part of the proceeds. And he goes on to say, why have you contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. <laughs> I would like to have been a fly on the wall during this meeting, because, I mean, this, is, this did not go as the couple had planned, right? Peter, with, uh, as we see, the help of the Holy Spirit, can see through Ananias' carefully crafted devious plans. There is some kind of deception that is going on. So verse 5, Ananias heard these words, he fell down, and he breathed his last so just as Peter said, you lied to God, Ananias' body just went limp. It's lost his breath. It's like, uh, I used Avatar the other, the other week for illustration. It's like when the plug is pulled, right? And the body falls down. This is what happened. They just completely lost breath and died. The KJ, uh, King James says they gave up the ghost. That's what it says. Died instantly is the idea, right? And this is not, it's not a popular text for church growth here, right? This is not going to be promoting church growth at all. Verse 7 but it does, actually. We'll talk about that later. Verse 7, after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Now, apparently, the wife didn't have, uh, didn't have like a Twitter account or something, didn't have a news feed where she could like, you know, get the latest breaking news. <laughs> could have saved her life, but she didn't have that. Um, but as God would have it, she didn't have a clue. She walks in three hours later, no idea what has occurred and we find she did the same thing. Verse 8, it says, uh, Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, yeah, for so much. And then she goes, you understand what Peter's doing here? I think this is very gracious. He's actually giving her an opportunity to, to come clean with this, right? Tell me exactly. Is this exactly what you did? Um, he didn't wait for her to go through her spiel and kind of what she had rehearsed. He engages her. He asks her questions, hopes for confession and repentance, but she sticks to it. Right, like Colin Ray once saying, this is her story, and she's sticking to it. Some people may, may know that, may not. I saw that, okay. Old country song. Anyway, so she experiences the same fate as her husband. Verse 10, she immediately fell down his feet, breathed her last. Young man came in, found her dead, carried her out, buried her beside her husband. So that's the basic story of what happened. So what's the problem, right? What, what is going on here? What, what is the... What is the sin? There's really two things here, all right? This is two things that are very important we need to understand. There are two things. There is a, and this is always the case, by the way. There's a sin, and there's a sin underneath the sin. There's the outward act or activity, and there's something underneath it that is driving that, okay? We sometimes call it the heart issue, right? What's underneath? The sin underneath the sin is really more important to deal with because you can't just deal with the external, so let's look at the, the internal part here. What's going on internally? We'll call this, the Bible calls this idolatry. Now let me walk with that for a minute, walk with you through that for a minute, because sometimes you think idolatry, you immediately go to like some kind of like, you know, wooden statue or something carved, some carved imagery and some pagan rituals or whatever. Idolatry is not necessarily that, okay? While many in the church in this text have been transformed from, again, possessive persons to stewards of stuff, this couple didn't go along with that. They didn't share that perspective, but they didn't want to feel inferior to the rest of the followers of Jesus, so they, they concocted a plan that would give them, get this, the best of both worlds. 
They sold a piece of property, as the others had done, and by mutual agreement, they gave part of the proceeds to the church and made it look like they gave all of it, right? Made it look like they gave all of it. They were using their possessions to manipulate the church, to look favorably, the people to look favorably upon them, to affirm kind of their godliness and their piety. Hey, we, we're right in this thing. We'll, we'll sell everything too. At the same time, by retaining a portion of their proceeds, they were maintaining a hedge against material insecurity. So they, they have both, right? They have the applause of people that they desperately want, and they have, the, they have material, material security that they desperately wanted to. They have both of them. This is what they're doing. Why they do this? Because when Jesus and his glory and value are not at the center of your heart, something else must be. I've told you this so many times. It's important to go back to that. Something has to occupy the center of your attention, the center of your heart, your affections. Um, as five, four, uh, the, chapter 5, verse 4 says here, it was an issue of the heart. You know, say God created us, and he created us for himself, and he created us to worship. And if it's not him, then it will be something or someone else. And whatever that something or someone else is, they will eventually let you down. We long for validation, for something or someone outside of ourselves to approve of us. And this couple, they desired the affirmation and the approval of the church. Now, that may not be your peer group that you care to be affirmed by, okay? I get that. That may not be the group you're going, I really care about, I don't care about their opinions. But there's somebody you do. There's a group of people that you care about their opinions. For these guys, the, 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 the popular movement of the church, they got swept up in that. And they're like, well, I want, to, I want their approval. And so this is what they did. It was like uh, Michael Jackson, whose family said after, uh, after his death, uh, one of the, the family was quoted as saying, quote, his only validation was the applause and the acclaim of fans. That's why he did it, right? I just need the applause and the acclaim of fans. Another musician, um, Madonna, said this a very interesting insight into her own heart. Listen, she said, she said, I have an iron will, and all my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, and then I get to another stage, and I think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. Again and again, my drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me. But because even though I've, I've become somebody, I have to prove that I'm somebody. And my struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. That's a good insight into the heart. If it's not Jesus, it will be something or someone else. Right? That says, here's how the heart works. Instead of turning to the true God and Savior, who is Jesus, who the Bible created us for, we, even as Christians can do this, make substitutes, okay? Make substitutes. We, they're called idols in the Bible. To use, uh, to use Lord of the Rings illustration here, Gollum, if you remember Gollum, Lord of the Rings, it was his precious, right? The same thing. It's a, that created idol, something that I have to have. It's a good image of that. We're all seeking to be delivered by some perceived need we have, right? We want to escape some kind of Functional hell, we could call it, right? I don't, I don't want to go here. I don't want to be a part of this group. I don't want to be disapproved. I don't want to be, not have money. I don't, whatever it is, I want to escape this. So I need to find a substitute. I need to find a savior. I need to find a deliverer who will get me out of this hell and into this heaven. You see, that, that's how our hearts are functioning. It's how they, they work. And so we're hoping that our little, our little precious, our little idol will get us there. This is what we all do. Blaze. Pascal, this is a guy you can think uh, geometry for, 
if you're in, uh, taking geometry class, you can thank him for that. He uh, was also a Christian theologian. He said this, this is interesting, kind of, again, the take on the nature of man. He said, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. He says, the will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. They're all seeking some kind of savior. For some, tragically, they, death is, feels like a savior, right? That, that, that's the way the heart is functioning. If it's not Jesus, it will be found somewhere else. And here's the thing. In doing this idolatry thing, we literally, what we're doing is we're literally exchanging we're switching. We're exchanging the glory, value, and worth of the eternal, all-satisfying God for something else that we think is better at that moment. We have usurped, right? We have exchanged. That's what Romans 1.23 defines sin as. We exchange the glory of God for something else. But look at this. Listen to this picture. This is one of the best pictures, I think, in all the Bible that describes for us what sin is. Jeremiah, way back in the Old Testament, chapter 2, verse 12. This is God speaking. He says this. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out the cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that could hold no water. Think about that imagery, okay? The setting is a desert setting, okay? You're, you're wandering in the desert. You come across an oasis. It's a fountain of, of water, right? You're dying of thirst, this is the image God says. This is what human, we do as human beings. We see this fountain. We see the water, and we go, oh, man, that would be really good. I'm sure it's really good, right? I'm sure Jesus is good. But, man, I, I bet you there's better water just a little bit further out. And so we forsake the fountain of living water that we were meant for our soul, to thirst, you know, satisfy our soul. We abandon that, and we keep searching. And we keep wandering. We keep going. They're dying of thirst in the desert. And the image there says that what we do is we, we take these little bowls, and we craft them. And we hope that it rains that one or two times in the desert. And he says, we do. We go to collect that. We go, oh, this is, what I, this is what I wanted. And we turn the bowl up to drink out of it. And he says, it's got holes in the bottom. And as soon as we go to drink it, it all just falls out. That's the image of our idols. We think that it's better. We think that it's going to be better than Jesus. There's something better out there. Just keep searching. Keep going. Keep trying to find it. So Ananias and Sapphira, they, they want this. They want something they feel like is better than Jesus. They want, they want to be successful. They want security. They want to be accepted. And they feel that the best savior, the best deliverer of those things, is not Jesus. But get this, the opinions of people. Specifically to them, the opinions of the Christian community. Their reputation to their community as sacrificial, generous people was more important than Jesus. So while others, like Barnabas, were giving because their identity was found in Jesus and his work on their behalf, these guys were giving because of their need to bolster their reputation and identity in what they did. Do you see the difference in those two? Outwardly, the giving looks exactly the same, but internally, totally different. It all looked the same on the outside. That's exactly what Satan's after, by the way. He, like he always does, tempted them to, to take something good, okay, Something good, what was good? Giving, eh, it's a good thing. Longing for appreciation, that's good, right? Have a good reputation, sure. Security, good. None of those things are bad, 
They're not bad, but those, those are the things they wanted, but they made those things into ultimate things. That's really what sin ultimately is, right? It's always, idolatry is always taking a good thing that God gives us, right? Some good gift, some good desire, and making an ultimate thing, right? Making something good, ultimate. I have to have it. It's the ring, right? It's the golem in the ring. I've got to have it. I'll sacrifice whatever I can to get it. So when people or things or ideas become where we find significance or value and identity, we are then usurping Jesus' saviorhood and kingship in our life for them. We're selling out Jesus just like Judas did. That's exactly what we do. So Ananias and Sapphira have exchanged the glory, approval, and acceptance of Jesus, his work on the cross, for the glory, approval, and acceptance of man in their work, their work in giving. They wanted the credit, the honor, and the community of being sacrificial givers it was not God's honor, but their honor they were after. It was not the concern to benefit the poor necessarily. It was a concern to benefit themselves. And for them, here's how this works. For them, the idol of money, the idol of reputation and applause of man led to an outward sin. And here's the second part of it. So we looked at the sin underneath the sin. It led to hypocrisy, right? It led to hypocrisy. Because their reputation to the community was everything to them, they lied to look good. They, in essence, would we could call almost like Christian Pharisees. Um, when Jesus is not your savior, not your king, not your treasure, you're, in essence, forced into some form of hypocrisy. Why? Because you have to fake it, right? You have to lie. You have to cover up the blemishes on yourself in order to appear, a better, to appear better than you really are. Hypocrisy has to come out if something other than Jesus is actually your treasure, is at the heart center of your heart. This is the beauty of the gospel. The gospel kills hypocrisy because your identity is not in your performance or perceived performance, but on Jesus' performance for you. See how that works? The gospel kills hypocrisy because it's not based on your performance anymore. Your Your identity is not lifted up or broken based on the opinions of others. This is why I believe if Ananias and Sapphira would have come clean, Peter even offered the opportunity to and repented, this would not have happened. But as it stands, they had usurped the glory of God for their own and had begun unraveling the mission of God with their hypocrisy. And as we'll talk about in a minute, nothing kills the mission of God more than these two things. And understand this, too, okay? Jesus does not judge them because they don't have it all together. Okay? That's not the reason why this happens. Rather, he judges them because they pretend to have it all together. Those are radically two different things. Jesus wants honesty and transparency and repentance within the church, not, not perfection and definitely not self-righteous play-acting is what they were doing, right? Just what's genuineness and honesty. That's what the gospel propels us towards, honesty and transparency and repentance. But Jesus doesn't tolerate idolatry or hypocrisy because it destroys the very essence of the gospel of grace, Think about this. If you go back to the Gospel of Matthew we studied um, this, this past year, you look at the life of Jesus, and you find, what did he stand against more than probably anything else? It was hypocrisy, right? I mean, he, he accepted and worked with people that were very broken and very much confessedly broken, okay? They were people who were hiding it, people that no one else would go see, right? And the people who seemed to have it all together These were called the religious leaders. Sometimes the word Pharisees are used or Sadducees, right? Priests, things like that. Those people, Jesus had, he didn't didn't have a lot of patience for. 
Matter of fact, just let me just, just read just from Matthew 23, just a few, the whole chapter is like this, but just listen to these words. Jesus said this, Matthew 23, 5 through 7, he's speaking of these religious leaders. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. They love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. Verse 13, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Verse 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Woe to you, and he keeps, this is condemned basically. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Down at verse 33, he says, you, you serpents, you, <laughs> you brood of vipers, how, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you kill and crucify, and some will flog, you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. So why did the scribes and Pharisees do this? Why did they put on a show, right? Why did they do that? Because, it was, because their whole identity was about them. Their whole life was built upon the appearance and the reputation and the identity as being good and righteous people. And so they put the mask on because that's what they valued. The same was true of Ananias and Sapphira. We're seeing the exact same heart motive just as the Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes, the religious leaders of Jesus' day. These, these two, this couple has fallen into that same trap. So number two. So that's the problem. Number two, why so serious? Yeah, I know that's from the dark night. But anyway, why so serious? He says this, verse five. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down, breathed his last. Great fear came upon all who heard it. So I always, it's interesting reading commentators. Commentators are people that uh, write books on certain books of the Bible, and they kind of give you insights into the language and different stuff. And some try to argue that, that, <laughs> that Ananias just died of natural causes, um, like a heart attack from fear or stress, guilt, um, which is quite stretching considering his wife died from the exact same thing a few hours later. But, but the text makes it clear that that's not what happened at all. Jesus just, just took back his breath, right? Just took it back, that they, that they had borrowed from him. And he can do that, by the way, anytime he wants to. I know that makes us very uncomfortable, but the very breath we're breathing in and out, that's his. He can take it anytime he wants to. But, but why, why Ananias? We can say that, that part of it, of, of why this happened, was because Jesus wanted to nip in the bud this, this whole hypocrisy and, and idolatry stuff before the church started heading down this road of kind of being a self-righteous acting group. Maybe that's what happened. Hypocrisy, again, and idolatry kill the church, and they kill the mission of the church. Think about that. The American church is full of people who idolize all kinds of things other than Jesus. Idolize money, safety, comfort, political parties, right? And once 
uh, and, and all those people, and they attend you know, services once, twice a month or something, making it look like that they treasure Jesus, but in reality they don't, and they treat people completely different than what, than what Jesus would have. They look nothing like Jesus, and that kills the mission of the church, doesn't it? That hypocrisy. You probably have people, or you yourself are one of them, who look out and go, they, these people they go to church, but they don't, they don't live any differently than me. They don't treat people any differently than I do, right? It's one of the, some reason people run from it. G.K. Chesterton, who was a um, theologian over in England some, uh, over about 100 years ago, he said the greatest argument against the truth of Christianity is the lives of Christians. Gandhi said, quote, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Ouch. But before you start thinking of all the people who are hypocrites around you, take a good long look in the mirror, okay, um, we need to remember that this is not, does not escape us. It's not those people. It is us. Uh, Charles Spurgeon is a pastor in um, England back in the mid-1800s in England. He was told one time that, uh, that people were leaving the church he was pastoring to join another church that wasn't so full of hypocrites. He was, he was pretty funny, a guy. He said his response was, well, when you find it, please don't join it because you're going to ruin it, Right? <laughs> But this, is, this hypocrisy, this kind of spiritual pride was deadly for the early church, just like it is today. If it's left unchecked, if it would have been left unchecked and God didn't take this seriously, there would have been no audience to hear the gospel, and the gospel would never have made it out of Jerusalem some 2,000 years ago, right? This was very serious to deal with. It can hinder the mission of God today as well. When, I, when idolatry and hypocrisy run rampant in the church, because the result is that, is that you have a people who, who, as a result, rarely exhibit compassion for the world at their door. But why? Because they're too busy playing church games, right? Too busy trying to make it look good and make themselves look good. The prophetic vision of being God's people in the world dies. And the idea of abandonment to God and love and availability to God for others ceases to even cross our minds. And then, because of the hypocrisy, the lost world, upon observing this, sees nothing that speaks to its own woundedness, nothing that speaks to its own uh, bondage and despair. It sees only its own sin, darkness and death mirrored back at itself. Right? Idolatry and hypocrisy kills the mission of the church. But you may look at this story and go like, eh, it's a little bit over the top. I mean, I get that it needs to be dealt with, but wow. I mean, God, that was a little bit, uh, was a little strong response to, to what happened here. I mean, take the lives of people. Why, is, is, is that a little over the top? Well, no, it really wasn't. This is how serious Jesus is about the reputation of the gospel of grace in a local church and seeing others come to know him. Unless you get too comfortable with yourself, do remember we're living on borrowed air. I know we don't like to talk about these things. We don't like to like venture into these things and make us uncomfortable, but it's true. We don't own the air that we breathe. Jesus is not unjust to take back his breath whenever he wants to. He doesn't owe us anything. Again, that user-friendly Jesus, he owes us a lot. The Jesus of the Bible doesn't owe us anything. We're all guilty of worshiping and valuing and treasuring something or someone else more than Jesus on a seemingly daily basis. We don't earn points with God by our little works, we do. Even in our point earning, we're actually not treasuring Jesus but ourselves. And so Christians, and even non-Christians, don't have some kind of free pass from tragedy and death. And this really gets into, hits home, it really gets uncomfortable for us, but I just need to deal with it because it's there, right? It's home for us, even here. 
when tragedies happen all around our world, just, I mean, look what's happening. I'm, this morning I saw something in Baghdad happen with the hospital burning down. I saw that what's happening in India. We just had what happened in FedEx at the airport here this past week. I mean, tragedy is all around us. Don't think for a minute that Jesus has fallen asleep or was too busy to see what happened. And you can bet that the, in that airport and all that took place over there, the person who shot those people will be handled by a holy and just God, okay? But also, don't think that Jesus is up there pacing the divine floor, worried about, oh, man, what am I going to do now? I didn't see that coming. I don't know what's going on. His heart is grieved. As we see in the Gospels, Jesus was grieved by pain and death and injustice. And yet, such tragedies also doesn't mean that Jesus is not still absolutely sovereign at the same time. I mean, guys, if the crucifixion of the Son of God was in the divine plan, then so is everything else. Acts 2, we've already seen this. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Let's remember that sadly, over 200,000 people die every single day in our world. So death is nothing new to us. But tragedies like this do cause us to ask questions, don't they? Like this right here, we read this. Like things going on in our world, locally, globally, we ask the question, why? Which is no doubt what was happening in the early church now. They began to add, it says fear came over all of them. Why? Because they're asking the questions. I believe many times Jesus doesn't tell us why things happen because either we would not, would not understand or it would forfeit the work that he's even doing. There's pain that comes into our lives that we don't always have the ability to process or answer. It's like my kids when they were little and they take them in for vaccination shots and they're, you're holding them and they get poked with this needle and they, like, they don't understand. Like, I thought this was a nice guy. Like, what is happening here? Why, why the pain? Like, I, there's no way I can explain this to them as a two, three-year-old, right? If Job in the book of the Bible there had been told what God was doing in his life and we get the background story in chapter one and two that God was making him into a great man and if he told him all this, hey, I'm gonna make you into a great man. I'm gonna really test you with this. He wouldn't have become a great man, right? Become full of himself, and so we learn to, to trust while also wrestling with Jesus with our lack of understanding and being honest with him about how we feel. I've always told you, God longs for what lies in the depths of the soul. It's okay to ask questions. It's okay to wonder why. It's okay to be frustrated in those ways. I love how Job, Job 13, 15 said this. Listen to this, trust and yet complaint here. Though he slay me, I will hope in him, yet I will argue my ways to his face. Right? There's, a, there's just that, you, know, you see that in the, in the Psalms. The arguments and the God, why kind of stuff. There's also something else to keep in mind with things like happening in this passage in our world. Keep in mind, even though when tragedy does take place, that while we may not understand why it happens, we do know that this is always God, it's always working to give opportunities for people to turn to him. There's a wake-up call, isn't there? There's a reality that, that our lives are not as eternal as we like to think they are. Tragedies like this bring the fact of transience and mortality to the forefront. Our culture is obsessed with the thought of immortality. I mean, we're obsessed with it, as if we'll never die. We see it in the films, we see it in movies, we see it in shows. We see it, uh, we look at the, 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 the marketing to keep you looking forever young, the plastic surgery boom that goes on, right? But these kind of things wake us up. Je Jesus actually, the, people asked him this kind of question. Luke 13, he said this, 
of those 18 people of whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? Jesus answered his own question. No, I, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He didn't really give an answer to why it fell and why it took place, other than to say, it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to respond to the reality of God. So we need to be reminded that Jesus is much bigger than we think he is, that he is holy, and he's, yet he's still good at the same time. And I've shared this story because I love the series, Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe, right? C.S. Lewis, and I wrote that series. But we're reminded that when... Um, in that story, when Susan, upon hearing that Aslan was going to be a lion, was like, she asked the question, she said, uh, well, is he quite safe? And the response of Mr. Beaver in the story was, of course he isn't safe, <laughs> but he is good. But he is good, right? He's not safe, but he is good. All right, question number three. What about everybody else? That was the question I asked. Why these two and not everybody else? Which is the question we should ask whenever we face tragedy around us? Some commentators, again, treat this couple as a unique case. But are they a special case? No, I don't think so. We're in the same boat as these guys. The only difference should be that we are repentant that they are not. So look at verse 11. Again, great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard all these things. Now, you immediately read that. In our culture, you immediately think that's a bad thing. Oh, they're afraid. That's bad. Right? Fear, bad. Not all fear is bad. Not, there's different kinds of fear. I'm going to explain that. Culture, in our culture, fear is always considered a bad thing, but it actually can be a good thing. The fear of God is not in any way contrary, by the way, to the love of God. Those aren't two different ideas. Michael Reeves, in his new book, it came out called Rejoice and Tremble, says, he said in the book, he said, we have the impression today that fear and love are like two different camps, two different churches, two different the theologies. It says, the one camp speaks of love and grace and never fearing God, and the other camp seems angered by this and emphasizes how afraid of God we should be. The fear of God is like cold water on the Christian's love for God. We get the impression, he says, that the fear of God must be the gloomy theological equivalent of eating your greens. Some of the theological health nuts binge on while everyone else enjoys tastier fare. But listen to this. Listen to this combination here. Psalm 130, 3 and 4. If you... Oh, Lord, should mark iniquities. Like, if you, you kept track of everything, oh, Lord, who could stand? <laughs> who in the world is ever going to stand before you if you, you're marking our iniquities? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be loved, <laughs> that you may be feared. That, that doesn't make sense to us in our culture, does it? You're like, wait a minute, it should say love there. It's got to be a typo. <laughs> like, you're, God gives forgiveness so we love him. Well, God, yeah, but God gives forgiveness so we may fear him. Those aren't different things. Those aren't, those aren't completely contrary to one another. It's not that God wants us terrified of him. That's not the idea as followers of Jesus. It's that if we don't hold his grace and love as well as his power and sovereignty as higher realities, as greater treasures than the tragedies we face, then we will crumble under the fears of such tragedy, tragedies or potential tragedies. The fear of those things will trump those. We've got to hold the power, authority, grace, and love of God higher than those things. The great fear that fell upon the church when this couple died was, was a good thing. And it brought back into focus for the church the holiness and sovereignty of God, but also the love and grace of God because the fact that everyone else, it didn't happen to everybody. This brings us back to why the hypocrisy was so serious 
for the early church to nip in the bud and why Jesus was so upset at the self-righteous religious leaders of his day. The followers of Jesus had fear come upon them in a healthy way, but for those who were self-righteous and hypocrites of the day, no doubt in this scene, they didn't feel that. They didn't, ask the, they didn't look at the question and go, why me? That's not the question they asked. What, what would they ask? What would they say? The opposite is what they would say. They would say, well, I guess they had it coming to them. Right? I guess they had it coming to them. Why do people respond like that? Why do they respond that way as opposed to asking the question, why not me? Because their whole life, again, is based on the premise that if you, if you do good things for Jesus and you obey the rules, he'll bless you and keep you safe. He owes you. That's that user-friendly Jesus. But when they look at tragedies like what we see in our text, they say, well, they must, have, they must not have been keeping the rules, right? The rules like we are keeping. But we, if we embrace the gospel of grace, should be asking the question when such things happen, God, why, why not me? Self-evaluation. Because Jesus is dead serious that we treasure him and love him above all things. Matter of fact, 1 Corinthians 16, 22, at the end of the book there, if anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Well, okay. <laughs> That's... Uh, that's, uh, that's, that's some strong language. You say, isn't that kind of, oh, people asked this question before. I talked about this in a class I did a couple weeks ago. Um, you know, isn't God kind of, doesn't it seem kind of prideful of God? I mean, just be honest. I mean, seriously, God, like, we, we must love you. If we don't, you're going you're gonna to take us out. Like, that seems, that seems a little bit, like, full of themselves a little bit, Right? And if, but that's true in some sense, and humanly speaking, it is, right? If I, if I told you to, you need to rejoice in me, you need to praise me, you need to value me above all things, you would call me arrogant and self-centered and other things probably, right? You'd say all kinds, because why? Because I'm, I'm not worthy of that at all, um, because I'm supposing that I'm, I'm worthy of that and that the greatest good is found in your praise of me. But since God, get this now, is the most desirable person on the planet, you're seeking his glory is your, is your greatest joy because the command to delight in him is, makes it wonderful then. It makes the command wonderful. When God says, you must love me, delight in me, praise me, treasure me, that's a wonderful command because he is the greatest treasure. You see what I'm saying? That's why it's not self-centered. It's actually very loving of God to do so. I uh, always remember uh, the testimony of C.S. Lewis, my favorite writers, how he came to know Christ. He was an atheist, and he was wrestling with the realities of God. He was wrestling with all that. And one of the things that was kind of a hang-up for him in his story was, was he, he was reading the Psalms. <laughs> he said, um, he, read, he read the commands in the Psalms where it says, praise him, praise him, praise him. It's like, well, God wrote that. So God's saying, hey, praise me, praise me, praise me. And his initial account of that those statements, he said, he said in his, uh, his biography, he said, it felt, like, it felt like a vain woman wanting compliments. <laughs> praise me, praise me, praise me, praise me. And he said, but then he realized, he said, that the whole world is full of people praising what they enjoy. Readers praising their favorite writers, hikers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite games or teams. He said, we only praise that which is our highest joy, which makes us most happy. And so Jesus is not vain or selfish when he says, love him alone. It's actually a, that's the greatest command in the world. He's loving us by doing so. So why doesn't everybody die in, in, in the story? Right? Well, first of all, we could say, first of all, that it's definitely true because Jesus is patient, wanting people to turn to him and give, uh, and, and give, their, give their lives to him. Right? That's the first part of that. Um, 2 Peter 3, 9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but for all 
to reach repentance. That's one part of it. But even deeper than that is that it forces us to look at the cross. And there we find an answer. The cross is like a, it's almost like a dam holding back the wrath of God towards us. And if we repent, the cross becomes almost like a giant sponge absorbing all the wrath due us. If we don't, when we die, God simply lifts that. And we are, we are flooded with the wrath of God on us, right? That, that is the purpose of the cross. That's why it's central to all things. That's why Paul would say in Galatians 6, 14, he says, far be it to me, from me to boast, in, to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world was crucified to me and I to the world. He's just saying the cross is essential to everything. Last question, how does this move the church to mission? This seems a little weird, like how this tragedy move them to mission, but it did. You know, like I said earlier, it's like this is not a good passage on church growth, but actually, it actually is. <laughs> Some might think that fear will be crippling to the church. I mean, shouldn't this kind of incident, this situation produce cowardice people who turn inward instead of outward? Isn't this counterproductive to the mission? What in the world is Jesus doing? He told him in Acts 1 to go, you know, go into all the world, right? He gave him, go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. How are they going to do this with this kind of stuff happening? But this fear is not crippling fear. It is a fear that motivates them on mission. It's not a motivation out of fear of punishment either. It's easy to have people obey out of fear, but it doesn't produce compassionate people. It produces selfish people. The fear of God in this text is the product of looking around, having a sense of awe and respect for the greatness of Jesus, and realizing they were in the same boat with every other piece of humanity. It's the view of looking at their hearts still beating, relishing the grace and forgiveness that is theirs through Jesus. It is the only explanation for what happens next because they have compassion on people. And genuine compassion, not motivated out of guilt or shame or fear, but motivated out of love, only flows from grace, not law. These guys are humbled knowing they, what they deserve and yet realizing that sin is not a trivial matter and yet overjoyed knowing what grace they've received. So look what happens. Verse 12, it says, Many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. They were all together in Solomon's portico. So here they all are. They're hitting the streets. They're in community. They're meeting together. They're engaging people around them with the gospel of grace. Not only that, they're serving loving people. This is a people that are not afraid of punishment. This is a people that are in love with Jesus and amazed at grace. Look at verse 14. And more than ever, isn't it interesting? More than ever, and we've already seen passages says, and thousands were added. More than ever, believers were added to the Lord. The followers of Jesus were radically changed by this incident. It didn't cause them to cower in fear or shut themselves off from the world. Instead, it sent them out, we could say, as the Psalms say, rejoice in trembling, right? At the power, the holiness, and yet the grace of Jesus. The followers of Jesus were an attractive people. People were coming to them just like they came to Jesus, as we see the rest of the text explains, because there was something different about them. This is what the gospel of grace does. It transforms you, and it changes how you see people and how people see you. People can see through guilt, shame, fear-motivated people, right, whose deeds and love towards them is out of obligation. You can feel that a mile away, right? But genuine motivation by grace Genuine motivation out of love for Jesus is radically different. And that's what these people are experiencing. That's why more than ever, more people are coming to them. And I believe Psalm 130 probably sums up exactly what we read in this text. Listen to Psalm 130. 
I believe this is exactly where these people are. He says, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. His word, in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love. And with him is plentiful redemption. He will redeem Israel from all of his iniquities. This, that was the heart of the people of God. In light of the tragedy and the situation they just experienced and saw firsthand, it didn't motivate them to cower. It motivated them to, to take risks. Why? Not because they were afraid of being struck down by lightning kind of thing. They were motivated out of the grace and love that Jesus had shown them. And that changed them, and that actually, the people, the crowds, the people saw them totally differently. So as we, as we go to take communion, as followers of Jesus, there's little cups in front of you, bread, juice in there. We take a remembrance of the body and blood of Jesus, broken and poured out for us. We do in remembrance of him. As you do that, consider what is motivating you. What moves you to obey Jesus? What got you here this morning? <laughs> right? What... Uh, what moves you to, to care about people, to talk to people? What's going on down inside? And this may be something, this is like in the Psalms where it says, God, search me, know me, try me, know my anxious thoughts, see if there be any wicked way in me. That's a good prayer to ask right now. God, te test me out here. What's going on deep in my soul? What's maybe keeping me from loving and serving people? What's keeping me from speaking to people about you? Or what is, what is motivating me in what I am doing for you right now, right? That's, this passage gets to. And as we go to that, we want to remember the grace that we've received. As we take that bread and juice, remember that Jesus paid it all, and all to him I owe, right? Sin had left a crimson stain. Jesus washed it white snow, right? Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, for the opportunity to be together. Thank you for the opportunity to take communion right now. Um, this is um, something that is heavy, something that is... Um, on our, our heart, I pray that, God, you would um, help us, Lord, as we reflect on this passage to, to consider both your, your love and your grace, and yet at the same time, consider your holiness, um, consider your greatness, your sovereignty. Um, these are not usually things that blend well together in our minds and our culture, and yet, God, they perfectly blend in you. You maintain all those things. Help us to, have, to be a people who both love and treasure your grace and yet love and treasure your authority and your power and your sovereignty at the same time. God, um, transform us from the inside. Motivate us to love you, serve you, out of love for you and not to try to gain something from you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.